You know, I was tempted to give this this episode a lamentation status. I didn't. I didn't even think about it past the first initial temptation, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't tempted by the idea, because I hate this goddamn episode. This is one of those episodes of television, of movies, whatever, that actually pisses me off. However, pissing me off is not a requirement of a lamentation, as I've described before, so... I reined myself in on that pretty quickly, like I just mentioned. Damn it, what the hell? I'm having trouble getting my notes set up here. There we go. Uh, I've decided to save my ranting and raging for the end of this rumination, so anybody who just wants to hear me discuss the episode will go through that, and then I'll start railing about how much I hate this episode. So, first thing we see is something that is a weird trend in Star Trek, TNG specifically, lack of understanding or knowledge of what medical practices are. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're watching a medical show and the doctors and nurses involved are being called in to an actual emergency situation, you know, fire, explosion, whatever. And on the way there, the doctor's, hell, a doctor in specific says, I want you to find the most critical patients and try to allocate them to this and make sure that this burn place that we're going to, you have burn units available and ready. Now, if it sits smoothly and quickly, you probably wouldn't really think about that. But the moment you stop and think about that at all, it's like, why are you telling your people this? Are they legitimately that stupid to not understand what tri triage is? Or how to deal with a burn disaster is 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 this what we're saying that the the medical staff are on the flagship of the TNG era starfleet however like i said and i'll point it out each time it happens because it never stops frustrating me this is a recurring trend in the first couple of seasons of TNG where the medical staff are idiots Moving on. So then uh, Q shows up. And he says, oh, I am more important than your disaster. Blah, 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 blah. Is it just me or does this feel like another test in its own way? You know, the idea of, hey, so I know you're trying to go do this, this mercy mission to help people who are actively in danger right now, but I want to talk to you. And, you know, seeing if they would protest or try to go on with it or whatever may happen. Now, we know that he actually froze time when he pulled their attention. So, or he rewinds them back to that point, whichever is easier for him to do. So there's no actual threat. He could sit there for a year and yammer on and, and, and filibuster as much as he wants. It wouldn't matter because he could still return to them to the same spot and they could get on with the mission, yada, yada. He doesn't say that, though. I'll get to that in a moment, but... Bleh. So, what I also find weird about this is how this episode, and Farpoint kind of did this too, Picard is surprisingly congenial with Q, John Delancey Q. And that's funny because pretty much from this point onward, he will come across as someone who actively despises Q personally. And it's probably at least partially because of the events of these two episodes, but at the same time, 
it's just weird to go back because there's always been this sort of rivalry thing between Picard and Q, right? Even in an episode we covered recently uh, where Q interacted with Cisco, he said, you know, I was hoping for some witty repartee because Q has become so accustomed to intellectually challenging himself with Picard, right? So, I mean, that makes sense. But here it's just, no, yeah, I'll totally do this thing at whatever proper date, and I'll listen to whatever you have to say. I just need to finish this mission first. You know, it is surprisingly civil about the whole thing. In fact, what I find funny is even within this episode, he is more civil with Q at the beginning than he is with Riker at the end. But I'm saving that for later. So then Delancey overacts. Now, I was looking at this, and I was just generally confused. Usually when an actor overacts, it's because of the director, who doesn't properly understand how to pull a good performance out of their actors, or whatever. I should clarify, when a good actor overacts, it usually means etc., etc., etc. Obviously there are bad actors who overact. There's even good actors who overact and manage to do a good job of it. You know, good ham kind of acting is a thing, after all. But John Delancey is usually a good ham, and he's a good actor, and I know this. So why does he come across as bad? Like, like awkwardly unpleasant, I would say, is, is how I would describe most of his over-the-top scenes in this episode. Towards the beginning, around the middle, and towards the end as well. Now, the, the, the thing is, usually I'd say, well, it's the director's fault, but Cliff Bull directed this. You may not recognize that name. I've mentioned him before over on Voyager because he's a very long-standing Trek uh, directing veteran, and he's a good damn director. He's done some good stuff. He's not as good as uh, Mr. Livingston, for example, but he's still up there. So what the hell gives with this? Was that in the script? Because that happens. Sometimes direction is written into the script. I want you to be foppishly over the top or... Watch this episode, The Squires of Gothos, and then, or excuse me, The Squire of Gothos, and then act this way. I mean, I don't know. Anyways. So. <laughs> Riker, I'm just going to talk about Riker really quick. Riker acts weird the entire episode. It legitimately feels like, and again, normally this would sit on the director, so I really don't know what the hell's going on with this episode. It feels like the director was like, I want you to act this way. And then he turns around and says, now I want to act, I want you to act that way. And just literally shifts back and forth between how Riker acts throughout the episode. Now, normally, and speaking from personal experience, actually, from my own amateur directorial experience, normally when you're doing this kind of thing, you're doing it on purpose to make a character point. I want to show that this character is torn about this, or the way they interact with this other character, or the fact that they have their mask on about this person, but not around this person, you know, that kind of a thing. But it's very awkward and oddly transitionary, and the only thing that I could probably pull from that is the fact that Riker is quite literally being mind-affected sometimes and not others. That's the only thing I came up with. He legitimately comes across as, well, I would say schizophrenic, but of course that's not actually what schizophrenia is, but, you know, dual personality, basically, throughout the course of the episode. Because sometimes he comes across as almost silly, like he's basically acting like Q, you know, foppish, over-the-top, unpleasant, awkward, etc. And the other half of the time, he's scowling and serious. We don't have time for this, practically yelling most of his lines. And he just flip-flops between those two things the whole episode. It's just really weird. Now, uh, and, and, and uh, before I get into a big speech, I want to mention, there's this one thing where Picard's like, 
Quick, Toberlift Control, help me out here. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I want you to imagine that you are a part of Starfleet, okay? Try to picture... If you're watching this video of some total geek sitting you know, in, in, in his office here trying to t discuss this episode, you probably think joining Starfleet would probably be a good thing. At the very least, it would be cool. So I think you can understand the idea of, yeah, I'm going to join Starfleet, and you do really well at the Academy, and you manage to do so well that you can actually go on the flagship of the Federation. Holy crap! That's like one of the greatest honors. You probably are telling all your friends and all your family, I get to be on the Enterprise D. You know? Then you get to the Enterprise D, you go into a little room, and you make sure that the turbolifts are running on time. Or whatever it is turbolift control does. I don't know. Maybe they're there for when the turbolifts break down. Except that, of course, doesn't make sense. Because that wouldn't explain why that never happens in the entire rest of the series. The episode Disaster comes to mind immediately. <laughs> what the hell is turbolift control? I, anyways, anyways, anyways. You know what? Before I get into the big speech, I want to do one other thing really quick. Um... So, Tasha has a scene on the bridge of the Enterprise. Now, I went into this scene biased. I'm just going to admit that. And then I was like, no, hang on. And I have this whole mental exercise thing I do to try and basically remove myself from expectation. Obviously, you know, I am human. I do not have the ability to be a robot yet. So, I don't have the capacity to be completely unbiased or completely objective. I understand that. But I do try, especially when it comes to these analyses for my show, I try to pull myself out of my own biases as much as possible. And I was biased against this scene a lot. But then I pulled myself out of it. Okay. Rewatched the scene, really cranked analysis mode up, and I did find one nugget of something interesting in there, but for the most part, I just, oh god, I hate that scene so much! So, there's no chemistry at all between Denise Crosby and, uh, oh my god, I can't think of the actor I was in, I keep wanting to say Jean Luc, uh, Patrick Stewart, there we go, god, there is no chemistry at all between Denise Crosby and Patrick Stewart, which is weird because Patrick Stewart is a very charismatic actor who tends to get along with just about everyone in real life as well as on camera. So that says something for the level of awkward, un just unusual, uncomfortableness that that whole scene pervades. Now, I mentioned I caught a nugget in there. Uh, when I really t turned my bias off as much as I was possible. And that is the fact that Tasha, who starts crying on the bridge in front of her commanding officer, which I'm not even going to get into how much I don't believe that. Even now, we're, well, like nine episodes in. I still don't believe it, but anyways. So Tasha starts crying. And that makes perfect sense. No, seriously. Uh, not the crying part, but the way she feels. Again, keep in mind her backstory, as I've been talking throughout these ruminations. Keep in mind all that she's been through. Keep in mind that she pushed herself to be the a lieutenant, or lieutenant commander. Actually, I actually don't remember right now, but either way, at least a lieutenant, and in charge of security, and also tactical, which is kind of weird, but we'll get, I'm not even going to get into that. So, on the flagship of the Federation, you know, this is a woman who has really striven to be in control of her life. And isn't it obvious why someone who comes from where she comes from and has gone through what she has been through would want to be in control of her life? 
So it is then logical that when she feels literally powerless to such an extreme extent that 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 doesn't even exist in real life, that's how severe it gets, it would make sense that that would kind of emotionally and mentally crush her. I get that. And so there's this nugget of characterization in this, not character growth, this, this, is, this is past, not future, nugget of characterization for Tasha Yar in this scene. And it's dwarfed by what is frankly a tepid performance, the fact that it wasn't for her character to begin with, which we'll talk about in just a second, and then the fact that she openly flirts with Picard. What? <laughs> what? I had to rewind that scene and rewatch it because I legitimately thought I didn't understand. I was like, wait, hang on, hang on. And then, nope, nope, super obvious. Holy crap. Uh, yeah, so that happened. But I mentioned I'd talk about one other thing. So you notice Deanna Troy, that is to say, Marina Sirtis, is not in this episode. Uh, there were issues, not a big thing. It, it happens from time to time where a uh, one of the A-liners, but not one of the people who has it written in their contract, will not appear in an episode. This is very common in all of television. This is nothing new. Uh, in fact, I personally would argue, this is kind of off topic, I would personally argue that the types of contracts which insist and indeed mandate that certain characters have a speaking line in every episode is not a good thing because it means you're always going to be hampered in that way, but basically by contractual obligation to always have them just poke their head in. Um, Cisco over in DS9 is a fairly good example of this. But she wasn't on the, on the screen. But that wasn't intended. In fact, very short before, very shortly before this episode went out, Deanna Troy was in fact going to be in this, and she in fact had a scene pretty much devoted to her. Can you guess what scene it is? Because I just freaking talked about it. Yes, you do have a brain. Of course you do. So of course you know what I'm talking about. But what really sells it, and I can't believe I've never noticed this before. I want you to, please, I want you to watch these episodes with me. I know not all of you are, but I've, I've heard so much positive feedback from people who watch these episodes alongside me. But if you, if you at least have access to the episode, pull it up, okay? Get to the scene. It's not that far in. It's only a few minutes in. And then it's the scene where uh, Tasha, excuse me, starts talking to Picard. She says, I'm, I'm in the, I wish I knew what to tell you, sir. You know, I'm in the penalty box, blah, blah, blah. Listen to her lines up until the flirting starts, basically. Listen to all those lines, close your eyes, and it's Troy. It's literally Troy's lines. They were just given to Denise Crosby even though those kind of lines don't actually make sense for her or her character, even at this point in time. They are fully in character with Troy and how she's been portrayed at this point in time. <sighs> Anyways. So then Picard and Q go off and have a scene. I actually like that scene. Uh, I don't have any negative commentary about that. I really like the two of them. Uh, ironically enough, John Delancey and Patrick Stewart do have a lot of good chemistry together, and the two of them are just chatting, uh, basically, about Shakespeare, which is funny, uh, for reasons I'm not going to go into, because that's a whole other barn, ball of warn that's uh, wax and yarn that's kind of gotten sticky and mixed together. And So I don't, I don't even want to get into that, but <clears throat> all I'm going to say is, I like the scene, but what I like most about it is that Q keeps quoting very specific Shakespearean quotes. Now, it's some more obvious ones, but for people who are well-learned in uh, late Elizabethan or uh, 
early modern English in general know, this is the kind of thing that he is doing deliberately to make a point. And that point being that humans are barbaric, savage child races. He's still trying to get that idea across to Picard. Now, Picard, of course, is a well-learned individual, catches on immediately and turns it right back around on him and says, no. And then he, he nails him by quoting something which is said sarcastically in actual Shakespearean work as a, as a deliberate intent to try and mock humankind, but says it with total conviction to showcase you know, how, how amazing humankind might become. In other words, believing in the potential of mankind. Q, of course, gets a little snippy about this and decides to start pushing his overall agenda. There's one other thing that happens, and I'm just going to mention it in brief. Uh, Picard and Q make a bet, a wager. Uh, Picard's command, actually career for that matter, versus Q staying out of humanity's way forever. Uh, I just feel like pointing out right now that even though Picard wins that bet, Q does not stay out of humanity's way forever. So, whatever. Anyways, so, uh, let's talk about the Q. I've, I've been kind of dancing around this topic for a bit here. Let's talk about the Q. Now, I've already talked about the Q many times over on Voyager, even though they only showed up three times. Uh, to be blunt, their first outing, Death Wish, was frankly one of the most interesting insights into the Q continuum as a people, as a culture, and as a species that I've ever seen. And in, indeed, I consider Death Wish to be an absolutely phenomenally good episode, if for nothing else because of the fact that it actually went in-depth into the Q. But what we see here is a, a portrayal of the Q that is surprisingly in line with that portrayal that is in Death Wish. Now, it's worth noting that this is Star Trek, which is not super self-contiguous. Star Trek likes to be, play it loose with its lore. Uh, TNG itself is very, uh, what I like to call setting continuity. In other words, things will happen which will change the nature of the environment, so characters will acknowledge them and change, you know, have character arcs. Um, the nature of the setting will change, and it'll be acknowledged and recognized in the future, but each story does not lead directly into the next story. That is what I call string continuity. You with me? But all of Star Trek as a whole, even just TNG, never could seem to make up their minds about the Q. There's really three generalized uh, perspectives on Q himself. I've talked about that before. And there's about two generalized perspectives on the Q continuum. One is the one presented in this episode and in Death Wish, which I'll talk about in a moment. And the other is the perspective of the draconian dictators who rule from on high, decadent and, and drinking the blood of innocence. <laughs> Uh, as you might imagine, I don't really care for that portrayal, but that is something that exists in Star Trek that came, comes up several times after this. So, the portrayal in this episode is, and I looked up, and I even questioned some of my viewers uh, in Discord if they could come up with a TV tropes term for this, and we got nothing. I'm sure there are, there are tropes that cover slices of this, but no specific thing, so I'm just going to describe it in full. The Q continuum comes across, the Q is a people, come across as an ancient, venerated, advanced, powerful race which has grown utterly stagnant to the point where they, they're just barely managing to do anything to keep going forward. And in most cases when this type of race is used in fiction, well, first of all, they're usually elves, but second of all, um, they're either trying to keep down other races 
Again, this is true with both fantasy and science fiction. This is a fairly common idea. I'm amazed there's no trope for this. Maybe there is. Maybe someone will give me a link. I don't know. Anyways, they, they either try to keep down other races to ensure their own dominance and, and to maintain the stagnation, or they're trying to bring in new blood in order to try and revitalize their, their empire. And both of these could be evil or bad, depending on how they're perceived. Now, this is how this episode in Death Wish vary. Because in Death Wish, while obviously the Q Continuum was trying to maintain the status quo, it was still being presented overall as an organization that desperately needed that new blood. I know this sounds weird, but there's a couple scenes where John Delancey is talking about the Q, and Quinn is talking about the Q, and there's a Q woman in the background, and she's just... The visual directing on her presentation is perfect. She has no lines, but she's leaning up against the, the post. And there's just this forlorn look, and her shoulders are slumped, and she looks like she's barely having the e maintaining the effort to stand up. That visual presentation of, there's nothing new, we've done it all, what's the point, has always stuck in my mind. But in, So in Death Wish, it was partially about keeping everything else down, but also about the desire for new, for new ideas, new concepts, and that was the, one of the key points of Death Wish. Here, it's actually really debatable what's actually going on here. Picard theorizes several times, so does Riker actually, that the whole point is that the Q want to keep down humanity because of exactly what I just refer referenced and talked about. But Q himself comes out and says, no, we want you to join. We want the new blood. We want something new and interesting. We want to revitalize our people. And I'm not sure which it actually is. So I guess it's actually not that unlike Death Wish, because here it's, it's kind of debatable and still kind of goes in both directions. But every presentation of them throughout the episode, and everything that the Q says about them throughout the episode, just, just kept bringing that back to mind. Which I kind of like. I, I like that they did some work with that in an episode that I, I want to punch in the face. <clears throat> so, uh, I have many episodes to talk about this concept. I'll probably discuss it more over in Deep Space Nine, if anything, because it's actually relevant there. All I'm going to say right now is that Starfleet has no idea how to do ground battles. Uh, at all. Maybe I'm a little bit biased because I've watched Space Above and Beyond um, and have real-life family members who have been in Marines, Army, Navy, and Air Force. Uh, and, of course, I've also seen Star Wars and Battletech, and you know what, let's just stop. Point being, <laughs> Star Trek in general, actually, it's not just Starfleet. Star Trek does not seem to know how to do ground battles at all. It doesn't understand tactics. It doesn't understand the very basic strategic concepts. And it also doesn't seem to understand that ground battles are a thing that can happen under certain circumstances. Now, I, again, I don't want to go into this in full. I was just reminded of it strongly in two points in this episode. Uh, one, initially, it's, they, they look at the, the, the vicious animal things, you know, the pig guys, the, the French pigs. Oh, my God. They actually... Why pigs? Why? I apologize to any of my French viewers, if there's any of you. I don't even know. Uh, anyways, the French pigs, who... Um, who were attacking, they're like, they've just got muskets. I mean, that's not going to do anything. First of all, that's extremely stupid. 
I don't care if you're from the year 5006. If you still have a biological form and are still human and get shot by a gun from now, you're still going to get, you're probably still going to die, especially if I know where I'm aiming. And it's still probably going to hurt like hell, even if not. <laughs> That's one of the dumbest lines of reasoning I've ever heard. See, the thing is, Starfleet doesn't believe in armor. In fact, they don't even believe in personal shields, for God's sakes. Which is funny, because most Star Trek games, which have ground combat, have personal shields as a concept. Star Trek Online comes to mind immediately. So, those muskets are still a threat, especially since they outnumber you. But then they're like, ah, oh, our phasers are vastly superior. Then they actually talk about the fighting them. And the one thing I'll give, and this is actually funny, I'll I, I, segue. I want to segue for just a second. One thing I've been noticing going through this, you know, the last nine episodes, is that Worf has maintained his dignity surprisingly well in season one, when basically no one else has. Now, admittedly, part of that is because Worf has had almost no real screen time or characterization. But, even in otherwise bad episodes, Worf tends to come across good. Like, like, he's actually an interesting character. It's no wonder they wanted to do so much more with him as the series went on, and eventually brought him on to DS9. Michael Dorn's amazing. I've been a fan of him for forever. Um, since this, I think, is actually the first thing I saw Michael Dorn. So since the late 80s. But he's also... he he, he He's just genuinely funny and genuinely interesting to see. And this is another example that Worf comes across surprisingly good in this episode. Not just in terms of, you know, amusement, like the thing with, with pouring out the wine, but his competency as well. But I digress. However, I have to throw all that out the window because then they're tossed back down and then the, the French pigs start attacking. And then it's it's like everything they were talking about, about the, the, the advantages they have, the super strong, super fast android who... I, I know Data gets changed in terms of his character sheet throughout the course of TNG, but even as of now, Data has been established as someone who is super fast and super strong, and they've got Geordi who can see from forever, and they've got rocks. You know, they've, they've got the ability to go into cover. <laughs> I mean, you've played Gears of War, right? You can get into cover, guys. <laughs> but then, in addition to all that, they just charge out. Worf just charges out. And Worf manages to take down two of these guys before getting knocked on his back and then basically laying there while the guy very slowly and methodically gets in position as if he's a surgeon or something to finally impale Worf. And then kill Worf. And then Worf still doesn't do anything. I'm sorry. The Worf I know from all of Star Trek would, first of all, would not just lay on the ground and take it. He knows how to leg sweep just as anyone else does. But B, even if he got stabbed, I guarantee you he'd keep going for a while. He'd just be pissed. <laughs> then, then, Wesley, Wesley charges out. And Wesley's like, no, my God, Worf, no. I'm going to run into a battle zone because I'm an idiot. Oh, God, I've been stabbed. And the best part is, I've heard the argument before, I, uh, from, God, I don't actually remember their name, it was, some, it was just forever ago. I've heard the argument um, that Wesley charging out makes sense because he has no battle experience, he's a kid. Okay, fair enough. Why don't the people who are part of a trained military, who are right next to him, including the super fast, super strong android, restrain him? No, no. Watch the, watch the scene again. They all just like, no, Wes, no, stop. Oh, my God, no, they're going to get you. No. And they just shout at him until Wesley gets stabbed. What? 
I... Anyways, that's, I'm sorry, while I'm on the subject, why is Wesley here? No, I'm dead serious. Watch the events of the episode. It's so bizarre. Wesley makes zero appearances in this episode until he randomly gets teleported down to the planet to die. And then, of course, he's there to take the aging thing, which is stupid. Sorry, sorry. We'll get there. We'll get there. <sighs> then, actually, I shouldn't say then. Let's, let's rewind a second here. There's one weird thing I kept noticing in this episode. There's about three or four points in the episode where something happens, and someone states the obvious as if it's some big revelation. You're no Starfleet Admiral Q. Those aren't muskets. This is a candle! Wait a minute. This is no carrot! I mean, God's sakes, does anybody do that? Sorry, it just irks me when I see that kind of dialogue writing. Anyways, so then Riker starts off a scene just laughing. And when asked about it, he states that he was laughing at Q. That makes no goddamn sense. What's he laughing about? They never explain it properly. The only thing that that scene is about is how Riker is trying to get Q to admit what Q is after. And so naturally, the best way to do this is to start the scene laughing, pretty fakely I might add, and then, God, I don't freaking know. I don't even know. I don't even know. Also, I love the way that Riker does his flourishes. This actually hasn't been established yet. Uh, later, Star Trek will start codifying the idea that each Q has their own little thing they do in order to access their powers. Q himself, of course, has the typical the Q-snap. It's such a common thing that it's actually sometimes referred to as a Q-snap. In fact, when I GM games as a, for D&D or for Magasin and stuff or whatever, I can literally just say, I'm going to Q-snap this and people know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, It's that prolific. But then Riker has this thing, and I can't do it. I literally physically don't have room in my office space here. But he does this thing where he starts with his arm low, and he actually like reaches down like this. I know if you're just listening, you can't you can't see me, but he reaches down and then flings his arm up like as hard as he can, like he's trying to throw a ball straight up as far as it's possible. And it's just, yeah, and it's just the silliest damn looking thing. Yeah, and that's not all. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> uh. Then, hmm, let's talk about humans being special really quick. So, uh, this has actually come up recently, uh, several times actually, because if you look at the overall aggregate of fictional works, both fantasy and sci-fi, just general speculative fiction, you will find a huge amount of humans are special stories. Now, I've had some people say that they hate that kind of story and some people like it. There's all kinds of opinions on that, and I get that. I totally do. Um, it is my opinion that there's nothing wrong with the idea in, in, in itself. It depends on what you do with it. For example, I think Mass Effect 1 had a perfectly fine story. And, and Mass Effect 1 was at its core, let's be honest, humans are special. Mass Effect 2 was more that, and it was part of the central themes of Mass Effect 2, but, you know, humans are special. Uh, XCOM 2 is an excellent example. Actually, XCOM 1 as well, but the XCOM series in general is another example of humans are special, right? You are the ones who fit us, blah, 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 blah. Now, obviously, Star Trek has a lot of humans are special. 
this is something that's been joked about both in, on camera and off many times throughout the decades. But this really boils down to the fact that this is always Roddenberry's vision of the future. That's where the core comes from. And in Roddenberry's vision of the future, humankind is special. You know, the humanist thing, that, that humanity is actually a unique type of life form that is, let's say it how it is, superior, and that it can ascend or ascribe to higher heights than other races can. It can also go to lower lows, that's part of the trade-off there, but Roddenberry likes to avoid that part. So, it makes sense that this is a humans are special story. The entire idea of the humans someday surpassing the Q, or the idea that the Q might need humanity in order to inject that new life into them, all this stuff I already talked about with regards to the Q thing, it's all, it's all there. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad, because in this episode, and in several other episodes of TNG and TOS, and even DS9 and Voyager, the humans are special thing is kind of a background flavor thing. And so it doesn't really bother me that much. There are later episodes, and we'll be getting to one in later season one, which really hammer home the humans are special part to the point of aggravating. But not here. So... <clears throat> I, I think I think I'm at the point where I'm about to start yelling. So that's basically it for my analysis of the episode. Obviously, I'm going to point out things and whatnot, but now I'm just going to scream at how much I hate this episode because everything from this point on pisses me off. Whew. Now I got to explain a couple things to you, okay? First of all, uh, I am what I tend to refer to as a realist, uh, which is in between an idealist and a cynicist. A realist understands that life can be really, really bad, and most of the time there's nothing you can do about that. Um, here's a great example. Uh, I guess it's been a few months now, but you know the recent hurricanes that hit both here in the States and in Britain are an excellent example of something that is real-life sucking. It would be nice if we could do something about that, right? I mean, I know that sounds like such a weird and unusual thing to comment on, but it's relevant to my point, because it was a disaster that we had no power to really stop or prevent, right? Arguably, we don't even have the power to properly recover from it. We can recover over time with mundane tools and abilities, and we are indeed in the process of doing so even now. But actually just fixing things? It's not within our ability. It's not possible. This is real life. So, with that mentality... The very idea that someone could be offered the ability to, direct example, fix all that pro all those problems, save any lives that were hurt or damaged. In fact, let's really put this as bluntly as we can, because some people were killed by those hurricanes. Some people were wounded. Some people's lives were wounded, which may sound like a, a strange, abstract concept, but think about how many people lost their cars, or how much damage was done to houses or buildings or, or schools or, or office spaces. People lost their jobs as a result of these things. People lost their livelihood. People lost the ability to have a roof over their head or their beds. Damage was done to people's lives in addition to lives being wounded and actually lost in these disasters. So if someone had the ability to actually fix all that and just go, I would consider that a good thing. Forgive me for actually being blunt about my opinion for once. But I do think that would be a good thing, the ability to do that. Right? Well, we don't have that ability. Right? That's not how that works. So, 
when I see a fictional work, and I've seen this a couple times throughout my life, that starts preaching at me on a giant soapbox filled with smug self-superiority about how wrong it would be to have access to that kind of power, I want to slug them. Now, I'm not saying this is a universally good thing either, because that would be stupid. If someone has that kind of power, they can do quite a few things. You know, if, if they have that level of what I call personal power, there's many things they could do which run the huge gamut of both terrible and great and everything in between. And that's a complicated topic, and the ethics and morality of that need to be carefully and precisely discussed. But that's exactly what they don't do in these kind of fictional works and in this episode. There's no discussion. There's no debate of the ethics or morality of using personal power to try and help or change or affect. None of that ever comes up. Instead, it's wrong, the end. Never use it, the end. Always unacceptable, the end. There's even a scene, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting so pissed off here. There's a scene where Riker says, wow, I sh how did you know, sir? I feel like such an idiot. And then Picard's response is, as well you should. Now, it's not often that I want to slug Patrick Stewart, but the moment he said that line, I just wanted to go, Ugh! God damn it! Really? Really? You smug bastard! This is the second thing I want to talk I haven't even really started yet, by the way. Second preface. This pissed me off. I know it's hard to believe, but I'm actually legitimately angry about this. And I'm pretty sure that if you've, you are watching me say this right now, if you've gotten this far into the video, that I don't have to defend myself from people who use the get a life, it doesn't matter argument, so I'm just going to leave that at the wayside. Instead, I think most people who have watched this point understand the, the concept of caring about something that is not real, sufficient to have it, it have real impact on my life, emotionally, mentally, etc. I think most of us who are watching this now could probably understand the concept that Star Trek has had a legitimate real impact on us, the real people. I've talked about this concept several times over Voyager, moving on. So yeah, I'm pissed. In fact, I am so angry about this, I had to pause after fi finishing this episode and just take a few minutes to calm down, because I was so angry I couldn't make my points. I don't know about you guys, when I get sufficiently angry, it's difficult for me to debate or to analyze or to present. It's hard for me to make my point when I am so goddamn angry. Like, I have to really think about it. <sighs> oh, So, Riker goes into the room. He's got Q powers now. Goes into the room, meets with Picard, and Picard says, How do I advise you? And I'm like, Awesome! Yes! They're going to do good stuff! And then both of them, at no point, is it even mentioned the possibility of Riker keeping this power and using it. Not even is that brought up. Instead... It is the automatic assumption that this power is bad and that it should be never used or tossed aside. Let me explain something to you guys really quick. Uh, I don't believe in the concept that power corrupts. I don't. I never have my whole life. Um, obviously, in fiction, that gets a little more grayer, ironically, because in fiction, uh, there are certain types of power that are literally corrupting. Uh, see fell and void energies over in Warcraft, for example. So those are literally corruptive energies. Okay, sure. But power as a concept, which is the ability to do something, because that's what power is, I have never 
ever believed is a corruptive force. I don't agree with that concept. I never have and I never will. It is my opinion that power is an enabler. Power allows you to be corrupt. Power does not corrupt you. Now, that also gets into far more philosophical questions about the nature of how and if we change over the course of our lives. So I'm going to leave that at the wayside. But I wanted to put that opinion out there right up front because this episode automatically assumes that power innately corrupts. Which is childish. Because if you take the mentality, if you take the mentality that power corrupts universally as a writ law, well then, I, I mean, I, I don't even know how to begin dis dissecting that because that's such a stupid argument. <laughs> Anybody saying that doesn't know what power is. Anybody saying that don't know, doesn't know how people work. Being a captain of a starship isn't corrupting, right? How about being an admiral? Well, that's a bad example given how stupid admirals tend to be in Star Trek. How about Klingon Chancellor? Okay, that's also a bad example. <laughs> God, this is everywhere in Star Trek, isn't it? You get my point, though? You cannot have it both ways. If you're going to do the absolute writ law mentality, which is what I call a childish mentality, it's very black and white, doesn't take anything into account other than just this is this and that is that, then you, then nobody should have any kind of power because power corrupts, right? And you could see, like, this may sound like a silly argument, but that's kind of my point. The mere fact that they are presenting this as their point, that all power corrupts, is stupid, even in Star Trek. But then, I'm not even getting started here. So then they go down to the planet. And of course we have to make this point as anvilitiously as possible. Like someone just opened up a, a, a freaking Boeing jet of anvils and dropped it on the plot. Because they go to this planet where there's this horrible disaster. And oh, if we were just in time, we might have saved this young female who is wearing pink. Now, I know that in the modern era, the idea of you know females being fragile and all that is uh, the kind of thing that's being pushed back against in gender equality and verses and all that is, is kind of changing in the dynamic in our culture here in the United States. But in the late 80s, young girl equals thing to be protected. Wearing pink, no less. This was done deliberately to try and artificially and brutally affect people's heartstrings and try to just showcase this as roughly and as brusquely as possible. This is one of the most anvilicious things I have ever seen fiction do. Now, you know what's funny? They never res her. He could. He had plenty of time to do that when he still had that power. And it could have stuck, maybe, possibly. It might have been undone by the end of the episode. But one way or another, they just let her stay dead. Because, you know power corrupts, right? So the ability to use power in careful, thought-out ways that involves adult and mature thinking and emotional maturity to ensure that you are constantly self-policing yourself to the point where, thanks to your own thought processes and those around you helping to govern your thought process, you might not get to the point where you start descending into so-called corruption and instead could then use your power in specific situations, in specific ways, to help you know, that whole, that whole speech I just gave, that's called being an adult. We do that every day in real life. We don't have Q powers because personal power doesn't exist in real life. 
but we apply that mentality to our everyday lives as mature adults. That's what we do. That is life. You can't just take this pen and say, this is the law, and nothing above is good, and, er and nothing below is bad, and writ law that, and apply that to life. It doesn't freaking work that way. Sorry. Sorry. So then Riker comes in. Oh, God. Riker comes in and says, you know, you should... I could have saved that little girl. You know what Picard says? You were right not to try. Picard, I, I want to make this 100% clear. Picard just congratulated Riker on not helping. This right here, by the way, is one of the things that pisses me off most about the misuse of the Prime Directive. The very concept of, this is the law, and we will obey it eternally and, and, and endlessly. Am I still recording? Yeah, I am. Okay. God, I'm sorry. I knocked some things on my desk. I was so angry about this. Um, you know, the Prime Directive is, is the law. We must always do this. We must never do anything else. But that's not relevant here. I'm just going to leave that at this wait side. So then Picard says something. I wrote down his word for word because I don't want to misrepresent it. Picard's talking to Riker, and Riker's like, I, I could have done this. I should have done this. Why are you talking about this? And Picard says, well, what happens when you, be, when you grow accustomed to that power? I'm sorry, what? That, that's your argument, Picard? I'm, I'm sorry, that's not actually an argument. You know what that argument is? Uh, there's an official term for this. I forget it, forgive me. But it was one of the most... Uh, amateur things I'd see people in debate club do back in the day, back when I should actually be in debate club. It's the something bad might happen, therefore you must assume something bad will happen. That's that's the argument, basically. The idea that, well, you don't know the risks, you, know, you don't know the consequences. I don't know where that accent came from, forgive me. I'm not implying anything with that. You You don't know where you're going with this, right? You might get so accustomed to that power that you start using people like childish toy things. Or you might not, because that's real life, Picard. Then he says something else, and he, he doesn't even finish his argument. That's the funny part. Then he says, what happens when you grow to like it too much? Gee, I don't know, Picard. Uh, I, I don't really personally see any problem with really, really liking the ability to save a little pink girl's life. I don't see that as a problem. I don't really think there's any particular issues with being happy about the fact that I could prevent that hurricane or I could stop that earthquake. God damn it, Picard. <sighs> Again, he doesn't actually give a real argument because the writer has no real argument. Oh, that's my point, by the way. This is something I actually talked about. I ranted about this episode before I even watched it. Uh, I was talking about it with some of my viewers and... The biggest thing that pissed me off was that there is no argument on the side of don't use the power. There really isn't. The only thing they present which could be argued to be an argument is the idea that power corrupts all the time, 100%, so you should never use this power ever. That's the argument. That's, that's all they've got. That's not an argument. That is basically a straw man. It's just an inverse straw man, I guess. So... I was ranting about that, but then, but then, I'm re-watching this episode just here today, right before I sat down and started recording, 
And I realized why. I finally understand. And I know this is going to sound like a joke, but this makes more sense than it ever has, okay? As Kefka rides by here. <laughs> Picard wants to win his bet. <laughs> and I know that sounds like a joke, but I want you to legitimately think about this. Because there are multiple times in this episode. Uh, th there's a part where... Uh, towards the end when Q's in the monk outfit and Picard references the bet and Q looks kind of worried and Picard likes... And, you know, P Picard basically says, Ah, oh, so it's not decided yet. You haven't decided yet. He looks, like, relieved, like, Oh, thank God I haven't lost the bet yet. Because Picard really doesn't want to lose his career. Remember, Picard has sacrificed his life to this career, right? I guess we don't know that yet, but it's true, nonetheless. So I state with total legitimacy and without joking that I think that the overall motive behind Picard pushing for this don't use the powers thing is that he didn't want to lose his bet with Q. <sighs> because I've never heard of another example or reasoning that makes any goddamn sense at all. I just got to share something. On my notes here, I literally have just scribbles right here. I was so angry for a couple of scenes, I just couldn't write anything down. Now, it's okay. The way my mind works, if I scribble something down, uh, literally or otherwise, I tend to remember it. That's that's how a lot of people do note-taking. Um, and I can tell you what that scene is. So Riker's there and is like, hey, everyone, yeah, what's going on? So, I want to give you guys a gift on my way out. And then Crusher grabs Wesley in and tries to rush off the bridge. I'm sorry, what? What? Where does that come from? <laughs> I mean, I know this is a more extreme version of this, but if someone walked up to her with a, a, a little wrapped present with a little bow on it, it's like, I want to give this gift to your son, would she be like, oh no? <laughs> what? And then, and, and I, I wrote down three of these, okay? So, Data says no. He just says no right out because he does not, in a word for word, he does not wish to compound one illusion with another. It would be real to you and the cube, but it will not be real to me. Why? Now, an argument could be leveled at the idea that Data wishes to grow in his own way to become his own unique individual being. That makes sense. But that's not the perspective that Star Trek has shown for most of TNG, and definitely not at this point in time. No. It's always been about the Pinocchio story, a.k.a. specifically wanting to be more human. In fact, in the next Q and Data episode, which is, I think, two Q episodes from this one now, there's and it most of the episode is devoted to the idea and the dynamic between Data, who is not human, and his desire to be human, and Q, who is now human and does not want to be human. That's an entire episode about that. You you do understand the difference between difficult and impossible, right? Of course you do, but I mean I'm I'm trying to speak to the writers of this episode. What what the hell are you thinking? So let me get the next point. Jordy is given his vision for one of, I think, four times throughout the course of the series. Something like that. And he's like, ah, oh, this is awesome. He enjoys it for a minute. And then, like 40 seconds, actually. And then he says, the price is a little too high for me. I'm, I'm sorry, what price exactly? What are you paying for this, Jordy? 
You're, are you referring to the loss of the first officer? I mean, because that's all I got. That's the price? Oh, and he doesn't want to thank the person responsible. Wow! That's, that's some smugness right there. And then, apparently those are the only two I wrote down. Uh, I want to talk about the Wesley thing, though. That was the scribble. Because Wesley feels like a constructed argument. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that in brief. Sometimes, Star Trek does this a lot, actually. But Star, uh, sometimes fiction will want to make point A. Like, that's what the writer believes is correct. I do this, too. You know, we all do this. But sometimes, in, in not less good writing, the writer will specifically construct a very precise scenario that specifically proves them right just in that scenario, and then treat that as though they're right all the time. I'm sure plenty of you can think of examples of this across Star Trek. This is what Wesley feels like in this point. This feels like the only reason he's actually in this episode is because the gift he gives to Data is something Data is not capable of having. The gift he gives to Geordi is something Geordi is not capable of having. The gift he gives to Worf, well, that's a little bit debatable. <laughs> but then the gift he gives to Wesley is something Wesley can have. It's the only one that's really just actually quite mundane. He just ages him a bit. And funnily enough, he looks nothing like Will Wheaton does now. But anyways, um, <laughs> that would have been a mind screw, wouldn't it? If they'd went back in the Blu-rays and put in Wheaton into those scenes, that would have been actually kind of cool. Um, but no, he just ages him a bit. And then Wesley says, no, I'd rather do it the, the, the slow way, the smart way. And then Q says, well, wouldn't you rather have it? This way's quicker. This way's easier. And as soon as Q says that... Q makes the writer's argument that Picard and the Enterprise crew haven't actually been making. The idea that there's a difference between earning something and having something the quick and easy way. Now, the problem is, nothing in the episode, aside from that one line with that one constructed uh, argument, that one constructed dilemma, actually applies to that. It doesn't apply in any of those other cases at all. So why exactly is that the point? This is why I say that I've never accepted that as the actual argument of the episode, that we've got to do things the hard way. Let me use a direct parallel. All right, Data, you have to become human the hard way. Um, well, I have the advantage of hindsight because I'm from the frickin' future. So I can look back and say, you never become human. You also die in a really stupid movie. Moving on. Okay, how about... Geordi. Well, eventually he does get implants so that LeVar Burton can wear something a little less irritating than that visor on his face, but he never gets his eyes back, not counting insurrection, of course. <sighs> Which doesn't stick, for some reason. Okay, not a problem. So that's not possible. Uh, let's look at my favorite example here, because I really feel like this really makes the point here, okay? If your argument is that we should accept, we shouldn't accept favors or gifts or try, try, shortcuts, and we should do things the hard way, apply that argument to the young, dead, pink girl. Go ahead, I'm waiting. What's your argument? That we 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 don't we shouldn't do you know the the easy way to bring her back from the dead. So we'll just do it the hard way. Of course, we want to earn that resurrection. I, I, what? <laughs> hang on, hang on. I need to get the the sacrifice and get any twenty souls, or, or if we're doing what Davy Jones methods, I need a hundred souls in three days. I mean, there is no hard method to do some of this stuff. That's the whole point of help. 
Okay, L let me really break this down. Forgive me. Imagine the relationship between a parent and a child, okay? Now, the allegory here is that the parent or the cue, I know it doesn't quite work, just hear me out, okay? The parent or the cue, the child or humanity, or, or whatever, humanoid entity, okay? With me so far? Now, obviously, a mature, responsible adult will want that child to grow and learn, and that means sometimes you gotta let them scrape their knees. Sometimes you got to let them burn their fingers, and sometimes you got to let them learn through experience, because otherwise you are literally stunting their growth. Make sense? Okay. Now, let's assume, and I know I'm constructing a scenario, so forgive me, but this has actually happened in my real life, so forgive me. Let's assume your child is just missing. You wake up, and they're not there. You, and I don't know about you guys, but that was a freaking panic moment right there. Now, if you had... Now, so, child missing, right? They're just out playing somewhere, right? Now, nothing actually happened. Could have, but nothing actually happened. If you... So, to continue to construct the argument, let's say they were out playing near some train yards, okay? Or near a road. I mean, God's sakes, this is actually a fairly common example. A kid will chase a ball out on the road and then, unk, Right? That's a thing that has happened in real life. So, do you then walk up to that child and say, Sorry, I'd love to fix your broken leg, but I can't because I'm going to let you do this the hard way? Do you walk up to a child and say, Okay, start working on your 401k. Do you walk up to a child and say, I'm going to stop providing food for you. Let me really make my argument. I'm sorry. I'm getting into more abstracts. Let me pull this back down to the analogy. I apologize, forgive me. This is something I've argued a lot, so I've, I'm kind of bouncing around in my argument. Just because you need to allow your child to learn things the hard way does not mean you should not keep helping and providing for them. Because a four-year-old can't go out and get a job and start providing for themselves and understand what nutrition they need, and understand the kind of exercise they need, and mental stimulus they need, and interacting with other people that's so important to us as social creatures to develop and evolve. We need, as parents, to help them. If you saw a parent who refused to offer food to their child because they wanted their child to do things the hard way, to not take the easy way out, what would your reaction to that be? And that is my point. This episode can go frelling burn. Because the whole point of this episode is that that parent should be applauded. Or, to put it as bluntly as possible, that this circumstance applies in all circumstances and should never be questioned ever. The end. <sighs> I'm, I'm, I actually have a headache now, because I've been ranting so much. I apologize, guys. Please forgive me. Thankfully, I'm pretty sure this is the last episode I'll be upset at for quite a while in Season 1. We've got some other stuff to go through uh, in the interim, so I hope you've enjoyed, to some extent or another. And I'll see you next time, guys.